0: Good afternoon, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I'm your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 237, and today is going to be part two of taking a look at NASA's um, just, I guess, department in general, because it is a federal agency, I would say. It's not through any state. It's an independent federal agency, but this is part two of that but again, this is episode 237, so we are moving right along. This is awesome. So we will go ahead and dive into this. So this talks a little bit about the the insignia of the NASA SEAL. It says the NASA SEAL was approved by Eisenhower in 1959 and slightly modified by President John F. Kennedy in 1961. NASA's first logo was designed by the head of Lewis's research uh, let's see, Reports Division, James. I'm not sure how how to pronounce his last name. I think it's I think it's Modar Relly, if I'm pronounced that correctly. And as a simplification of the nineteen fifty nine seal, in nineteen seventy five the original logo was first dubbed the meatball. I <laughs> don't think that's very complimentary. To distinguish it from the newly designed a worm logo, which replaced it. Um, so I don't think we should be uh, making it seem like it's a meatball or a worm. I don't think that's very complimentary. Uh, but needless to say, not always a fan of how they design things myself. Um, in regards to, um, I would say there, there's a program that was the X-15 program, and that was from 1954 to 1968. So let's talk about that just a little bit. It says NASA inherited NACA's X-15 experimental rocket-powered hypersonic research aircraft developed in conjunction with the U.S. Air Force and Navy. So that is one reason why I mentioned earlier in the previous episode that NASA, you know, it didn't just come out of nothing. You know, the, the United States Air Force and the Navy were helping out with different things already before then. So if anything, NASA It is a federal uh, agency, but it is an independent agency. It's very similar to the EPA in that you know, the EPA, they are not an independent agency. They are a federal agency as well. But before the EPA and before NASA became federal agencies, there were different divisions, different agencies and departments within the federal government that were already handling those types of jobs. So it needs to say it's better for it to come under one umbrella so that way it can be specialized. You know, it's kind of like a difference between going to see a GP, and then, you know, if you need to be referred to an orthopedic surgeon, things like that. So the more specialized something is, the better the outcome usually is. And so that's really good to be specialized so that way you have a clear understanding of what's going on. And I'm not saying anything negative towards general practitioners. It's just that, you know, general practitioners, you know, they are not allowed to deliver babies anymore. You know, back in the day, I would say back in the 70s and 80s. GPs could deliver babies, but then that was taken away from them. And so more women were pushed um, to, I would say, OBGYNs. But it's like, okay, are there enough OBGYNs to deliver babies? (laughs) So sometimes women can't find an OBGYN, so they end up in the ER delivering their baby. So you know, we we need to lift up some prayers that we have more specialists because that's really good to have more availability. Anyway, it says... Uh, Three planes were built starting in 1955. The X-15 was drop launched from the wing of one of two NASA Boeing B-52, and then there was an MB-52A tail number 52-003 and an MB-52B. And let's see here. Release took place at an altitude of about 45,000 feet and a speed of about 500 miles per hour. So very quick. Hence, supersonic speed is what they call it. Uh, Twelve pilots were selected for the program from the Air Force, Navy and NACA, NACA. A total of 199 flights were made between June 1959 and December 1968, resulting in the official world record for the highest speed ever reached by a crude powered aircraft and a maximum speed of, it says Mach, I don't know what that means, 6.72, which is basically 4,519 miles per hour. Very interesting there. Uh, the altitude record for the X-15 was 354,200 feet. Eight of the pilots were awarded Air Force uh, astronaut wings for flying above 260,000 feet, and two flights by Joseph A. Walker exceed 100 kilometers, qualifying as spaceflight according to the International Aeronautical Federation. The X-15 program employed mechanical techniques used in the later crewed um, spaceflight programs, including reaction control system jets for controlling the orientation of a spacecraft, spacesuits, and horizon definition for navigation. So basically you want to make sure that you always know where you're going. The reentry and landing data collected were valuable to NASA for designing the space shuttle. So good to know there. Moving on, we're going to talk about Project Mercury, and this is a a time frame between 1958 and 1963. So it says, in 1958, NASA formed an engineering group, the Space Task Group, to manage their human spaceflight programs under the direction of Robert Gilruth, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Their earliest programs were conducted under the pressure of the Cold War competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. NASA inherited the United States Air Force's manned Space uh, SUnis program, which considered many crewed spacecraft designs ranging from rocket planes like the X-15 to small ballistic space capsules. By 1958, the space plane concepts were eliminated in favor of the ballistic capsule, and NASA renamed it Project Mercury. The first seven astronauts were selected among candidates from the Navy, Air Force, and Marine test pilot programs. On May fifth, 1961, astronaut Alan Shepard became the first American in space aboard a capsule he named Freedom 7, launched on a Redstone booster on a 15-minute ballistic suborbital flight. John Glenn became the first American to be launched into orbit on an Atlas launch vehicle on February twentieth, nineteen 1962, aboard Friendship 7. Glenn completed three orbits, after which three more orbital flights were made, um, let's see here. Talks a little bit about his record, but I don't really care about that. Um, next is Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn were three of the human computers doing calculations on trajectories during the space race. Johnson was well known for doing trajectory calculations for John Glenn's mission in 1962, where she was running the same equations by hand that were being run on the computer. Mercury's competition... Uh, from the Soviet Union, USSR, was the single pilot Vostok, that's how you pronounce it, a spacecraft. They sent the first man in space, um, let's see here, Yuri Gagarin, if I pronounce that correctly, into a single Earth orbit uh, aboard Vostok 1 in April 1961, one month before Shepard's flight. In August 1962, they achieved an almost four-day record flight with, I think you pronounce this name, Adrian and I think it's Nikolayev aboard Vostok 3 and also conducted a concurrent Vostok 4 mission carrying Pavel, I think it's Popovic, if that's how you pronounce that. So definitely some interesting names there. So the next project uh, was Project Gemini, and that was from 1961 to 1966. It says, based on studies to grow the Mercury spacecraft capabilities to long-duration flights, developing space... Um, I guess rendezvous techniques and precision earth landing project Gemini was started as a two man program in 1961 to overcome the Soviets lead and to support the Apollo crewed lunar landing program adding extra vehicular activity and let's see, rendezvous and docking to its objectives. The first crew Gemini flight, uh, Gemini 3, was flown by Gus Grissom and John Young on March 23, 1965. Nine missions followed in 1965 and 1966, demonstrating an endurance mission of nearly 14 days, uh, different types of docking and practical EVA and gathering medical data on the effects of weightlessness on humans. Um, Under the direction of Soviet Premier, I think it's Nikita, I can't pronounce their last name, the USSR competed with Gemini by converting their Vostok spacecraft into a two- or three-man Voskhod, if that's how you pronounce that. They succeeded in launching two crewed flights before Gemini's first flight, achieving a three-basically uh, astronaut flight in 1964 and the first EVA in 1965. After this, the program was canceled and Jim and I caught up while spacecraft designer, I think this is how you pronounce it, Sergei Korolev developed the Sarus, that's how you pronounce it, spacecraft, um, their answer to Apollo. So basically, you have this competition between the USSR and America. So, what's interesting is that, you know, we had, we had the Cold War and we were having to deal with Soviet spies and then also we're trying to you know, create and launch a space program all at the same time. And, you know, we were competing basically with a communist country. It's kind of one of those things like recognize who you are in Christ Jesus. And you don't have to compete with the communists because we've already won. I mean, communism is on its way out the door. It's not good. It's not a good form of government. And it is a horrible way to run any kind of government or citizenship or any kind of science Program, I would say. So I'm not too too concerned about that. Um, the next project was a was a Project Apollo, and that was from 1960 to 1972. It says the United States public's perception of the Soviet lead in the space race by putting the first man into space motivated President John F. Kennedy to ask the Congress on May 25, 1961, to to commit the federal government to a program to land a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s, which effectively launched the Apollo program. Apollo was one of the most expensive American scientific programs ever to occur uh, by this time. It cost more than $20 billion in in the 1960s, or an estimated $236 billion in today's money. Um, In comparison, the the Manhattan Project cost roughly $30.1 billion, um, and that's accounting for inflation, It used the Saturn rockets as launch vehicles, which were far bigger than the rockets built for previous projects. Um, The spacecraft was also bigger. It had two main parts, the combined command and service module and the Apollo lunar module. The LM, the lunar module, was to be left on the moon, and only the command module, the CM, containing the three astronauts, would return to Earth. The second crewed mission, Apollo 8, brought astronauts for the first time in a flight around the moon in 1968, shortly before the Soviets had sent an uncrewed spacecraft around the moon. On the next two missions, docking maneuvers that were needed for the moon landing were practiced. And then finally, the moon landing was made on the Apollo 11 mission in July 1969. The first person to walk on the moon was Neil Armstrong, who was followed 19 minutes later by Buzz Aldrin, while Michael Collins orbited above. Five subsequent Apollo missions also landed astronauts on the moon, the last in December 1972. Throughout these six Apollo space flights, 12 men walked on the moon. These missions returned a wealth of scientific data and also lunar samples. Topics covered by experiments performed included soil mechanics Uh, meteoroids, seismology, heat flow, lunar ranging, magnetic fields, and solar wind. The moon landing marked the end of the space race. And as a gesture, Armstrong mentioned mankind when he stepped down on the moon. So that's a very famous quote. Um, Apollo set major milestones in human spaceflight. It stands alone in sending crewed missions beyond low Earth orbit and landing humans on another celestial body. Apollo 8 was the first crewed spacecraft to orbit another celestial body, while Apollo 17 marked the last moonwalk and the last crewed mission beyond low Earth orbit. The program spurred advances in many areas of technology, uh, peripheral to rocketry and crewed spaceflight, including avionics, uh, telecommunications and computers. Apollo sparked interest in many fields of engineering and left many physical um, facilities and machines developed for the program as landmarks. Many objects and artifacts from the program are on display at various locations throughout the world, um, notably at the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museums. I am a huge fan of museums, especially the Smithsonian, so that's a really good one to go visit. Uh, We are running over just a little bit past 10 minutes. I don't want to go too long on this episode, so I will go ahead and end it there for today. So next time we will discuss part three of this lovely topic. So until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole, and that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. God bless and bye-bye.
1: It's only left to ask. It's changed to quite a task. From the smallest depths, waves transform the earth.